Christian life. How are you this morning? I came in this morning and I saw that you support over 100 missionaries, giving close to $281,000, maybe $290,000 this year. These flags inspired my heart. I even saw Clemson and South Carolina flags up there. And I thought, my, what a vision. What a vision. What a great vision. Wasn't worship wonderful this morning? The choir did such a great job and the songs were just, just brought us into God's presence. It was just fabulous and so appreciated just the way Pastor Corey led us through that prayer time. Um, you know, this is what the family of God's all about. Yeah. Miss Brother Cheedy this morning, what an incredible pastor. You know, as someone who the last 25, 26 years of, of Cheryl and I's life, we have been involved in missions. And uh, we've been in so many churches from East Coast to West Coast and in between. And I'm telling you, you know when you step in a church where there's godly leadership and you have it with Brother Cheedy and this leadership team. Amen. Aren't you grateful for them? Isn't it just an amazing? Just amazing. And you, you can be blessed by that. You should be blessed. I know you are blessed. And we, uh, we so appreciate his heart, his vision. And uh, I, I'm honored to truly be here today and uh, to receive just his kind invitation to be able to share with you today. It was so good to be with Pastor Corey last night and Pastor Tommy. And we, we're just so grateful for all of you. And... Uh, and how much this church means. And, and this is what I'd like to do this morning. I'd like to do two things. The first thing I'd like to do is I'd like to give you a quick overview of what's happening globally because it's so important, I think. You know, for people like me, that this is our life and, and we've committed to it for so many years of our life, it's something that we see every day, we talk about every day, we study it, we see it, we're engaged in it. But many times, people who faithfully pray and faithfully give don't always understand the significance of what's happening. And I, I want to share just some amazing statistics this morning that I think will in, just encourage your hearts. And then I want to pivot. And I want to speak to you about mission and motive and what, what should truly motivate our hearts as we align our, our hearts with God's heart and his priorities. But first, let's give you an overview. If I were to show you a map of the world like the one behind me, you may not be aware of this, but Today, our fellowship that was birthed as a missions movement is now uh, involved in 192 countries of the world. Can you say amen? Isn't that amazing? Every 54 seconds in our movement, someone comes to Jesus. Someone decides to make a decision to follow him as Lord and Savior. Isn't that awesome? Somewhere in the world, every 54 seconds, every 81 minutes, a new church is planted through the efforts of our fellowship worldwide. Hallelujah. Isn't that amazing? I was just looking behind me when I walked in and I saw the banners of reach, plant, train, and serve. We often say that the reason that we exist is to establish the church among all peoples everywhere. And we do it by reaching, planting, training, and serving. But all of that, reaching, planning, training, and serving, has to be connected to establishing healthy local churches around the world that, much like Christian life, bring hope to their communities. And you see families engaged and impacted just like you're sitting here today or watching online. Isn't that amazing? What if Christian life didn't exist? Thank you. Is it... Connect, it's knocking, isn't it? I need to move my glasses out of the way of this microphone. <laughs> isn't that amazing, though? Just think about that. I mean, I was raised in a church, and I look back at it, and the reason I think I know Jesus today is because I was raised in a church where the gospel was preached and his presence was encouraged, and I came to know Christ at five years of age, and I remember the moment, the day, the time, when it happened, how it happened. And, and I'm telling you, when you decide as a church, we're investing sacrificially to plant churches around the world and to see leaders raised up and people come to Jesus and evangelized. You see, it creates something like this in those communities where maybe today, and there are thousands of those communities where a church doesn't exist. 
Today, in our fellowship, we now have, as of this morning, we have 2,681 missionary families around the world. Can you say amen? Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? Amazing. And because of that, just in our fellowship alone, and we have relationships with brothers and sisters and other denominations, but in our fellowship alone, we are close to 56 million worldwide. That means that there are 367,000, and as of today, 39,800 churches that are representing that 56 million people. That didn't happen by accident. It happened because generations before you, and now your generation, has said that God has called us to ensure that as we go, that this gospel is proclaimed to all people. Everywhere. And we've been faithful to do that. And God has performed his work. And I'm going to tell you, every prayer that you have prayed, every penny and dollar you have given, every time someone from this church is called to go to missions and you send them out and the missionaries that come through this place and you support them, this is the result. This is the fruit. (laughs) It's powerful. It's powerful. Because oftentimes, you see, we end up looking on the news and we end up wondering if God is at work at all. We end up wondering in our communities through the crime, through the uncertainty, the volatility, through the shutdowns of COVID viruses that impact our world, economic instability. We begin to look at the news and before long, the narrative of the news takes over and our hearts are weighed down with discouragement. And we wonder if anything good could be happening in our world today. But let me tell you what. As you're watching that newscast, as you're reading a blog online, God is working in your neighborhood. He is working in your city hall. He is working in the nation of our capital. He is working around the world. God is bringing people to himself. And you may not hear it all, but let me tell you what. Christ is near. Hallelujah. And this is why we exist. This is why we do what we do. And yet it is true that much of our world still needs to know Jesus. You know that it was this year that the human population on earth surpassed 8 billion people. And there are places that we know, recognize people like myself who study this, that 42% of the 8 billion in our world do not have ready access. They do not have easy access to the gospel. That they live in nations of the world, in communities of the world, where there may not be a life-giving church like Christian life among them. There are cities of over a million that there are not believers that live there. And so how do we continue to respond knowing that so many amazing, miraculous things are going on, that the church is growing so rapidly and steadily, but still there's so much of our world to reach? How do we align our hearts with what God wants us to continue to be involved in? Because in the end, it's his mandate in his kingdom, and he calls us to participate in it faithfully. For example... If we were to look at Eurasia and what's happening there in so much of the Islamic world, Buddhist world, and Hindu worlds. If we were to look, for example, in areas of Africa where Cheryl and I spent 25 years of our life and raised our children there. If you were to look in places like Latin America or Asia Pacific or the Oceania and even places like Europe. Europe. It was there that Brother Tommy and Jeannie went with me recently to be able to look at a project And we believe because there are seeds of renewal that are now beginning to transpire there. If you look at this map of Europe from Western to Eastern Europe, today we understand that there's a tremendous challenge that they face. Do you know that in Europe today that there are nearly 750 million people that live there? And only 2.5, if you want to be liberal in terms of your statistics, you could say nearly 3% are in any way evangelical, born-again believers. I want you to think about what that means. Highly secular, many of them would consider them to be atheist, perhaps Christian in identity, basically just on history, but those great cathedrals are empty. They are just 
remnants of something that happened great in the past where Christianity spread through Europe and then the flames of that spread to places around the world, including America. But today, the average young person in Europe has never had a person sit down with them and actually tell them the story of the gospel. That in many ways, just like in places where I have lived and worked, in places around the Horn and the Islamic Rim and North Africa, that there are places like in Europe today also that are so under-evangelized that there are children who feel like that Jesus, because they have been taught this in their schools, is a, a person of mythology that Noah and Moses would be around the same, that he would be no different than any other kind of religious figure of the past. Can you imagine? So today, though, something is happening again. There are new sparks of revival that are beginning to emerge, and that's why we decided to go to introduce you to a project at Continental Theological Seminary where in Brussels, Belgium, we are now seeing a school that has been there for many years catch a new vision to expand and increase its capacity for hundreds upon hundreds of students in the future to come to be trained for full-time vocational ministry in order to plant new churches in Europe again. Hallelujah. And we're seeing that. Reaching the continent of Europe is something that can be done. And I was sharing this morning that even in France, just within our fellowship alone, we are under 80 new construction projects at local churches because for the first time, young people and young families who have never followed Jesus, have never been part of a church, have come to know him, and those churches have to expand because of the new conversions. Hallelujah. Ain't that great? And I want to say thank you for investing in CTS. If you were to show you what we're going to be building, it's called the Shall We Campaign. And this is part of the new dormitories and life center. You'll see the campus there. That campus goes back to the 1400s. And that now is deeded and belongs to this school and under amazing spiritual leadership with a, a heart of fire. We want to say thank you for investing in there. I'm hoping at some point I'd love to see Pastor Corey visit there as well with his background in education. What's amazing about it is, is that there is nothing, and I can tell you from someone from experience who has given their life honestly to equipping men and women, there's nothing greater than investing in men and women who will then sacrifice to go into a community where there's not a church, plant a church, and where hundreds and hundreds of people come over generations and families come to know Jesus through that one investment. It's powerful. Exponentially, it's powerful. And we want to say thank you. Thank you as well for giving to the Africa Oasis Project and many, many, many other projects where we're doing compassion ministry around Africa. And uh, we don't do anything, by the way, nothing without it being tied and directly related to the establishment of local churches where it can be sustainable. I want to talk to you real quick about mission and motive because this is the moment where as you walked in and in your bulletin you received a faith promise or perhaps over the last several weeks you've kept this and you've been praying and thinking about it. This is a real important moment because this will be our altar call this morning. And it will be just as important as you raising your hands in the air or kneeling at an altar. This will be a moment of decision for you. This is something that my wife and I have participated in for many, many years of our life and taught our children to participate in. And today, my grandchildren. Do I look like a grandfather? <laughs> well, I am. And I love it. In those 25 years, we've seen some good times and some bad times. We've been under the threat of life and hijacking and shootings and lived in some really bad places. And we've lived in some really good places. And one thing I've learned is, is that you have to get up every day no matter what's transpiring around you and you have to make a decision. Will I align my heart and my spirit and my mind with what God is doing today? 
I've had students who have graduated and went to highly Islamic resistant areas where it was extreme and given their life for the gospel in the last 24 months. Not just 10 years ago, 20 years ago. And they have dug their own graves. And those students, because of extremist groups spreading terror in certain places in Africa, have martyred that individual in a terrible way in front of their family and made their church watch, throwing their bodies in graves only for two or three young men or women to stand up with the call of God on their life and step in their shoes. And I have often said, what is it that motivates them? Motivation is a powerful thing. And God has put motivators biblically in front of us. What motivates you? I mean, honestly. When you get up every day and you roll out of bed, what's on your mind and your heart? Is it the busyness of the day that's going to overwhelm and concern you as you rush out the door, concerned about being late to work or to school? Because it doesn't matter, you see, if you're in here today and you're a dental hygienist, primary caretaker of a family member, an engineer, a school teacher, a student, if you're in the military. No matter who we are or where we come from, everyone that's in this room and watching online, we bring certain backgrounds, we bring certain parts of who we are to life. And as we come together, we all ask ourselves, as God's children, as followers of Jesus, we ask ourselves, what is it that will motivate us to make the right decisions at the right moment? There is a concept in scripture that theologians often refer to in Latin called the imago Dei. And it means the image of God. And so profound is this concept that you can find it threaded from Genesis to Revelation. And it most notably emerges with power and force as God is calling his people to action in their communities or their world. It's powerful and profound because it speaks to the intrinsic worth of every human being. Every man, every woman, every child. That we understand the biblical truth that we are made in his image and worth is ascribed and imprinted upon us. Whether we're aware of it or not, this is something that scripture teaches. It is something that inspires me. It is something that has in many ways spoken deep into my life on so many occasions. But the problem that I often face, and perhaps you do as well, is that even though I know that this is biblical truth, though I know it speaks to the intrinsic worth of all humans, and therefore should correlate as to how I should respond to those around me, I find that I also come to understand that that image, because of our rebellion and sin, has been twisted and marred, and many times, in fact, oftentimes, it's difficult to perceive and discern in other people. And as I step out of this moment this morning where we have worshipped God and sense his voice and you're in a safe environment, when we walk outside these doors, we encounter a world where that image truly has been marred to the point in which we see the volatility, we see the woundedness, we see how unpredictable it can be. And if we are not careful... We will let the experience of the volatility of our world and its woundedness to take our emotions and transpose those on top of what we know to be biblically true. And if I don't guard my heart and spirit, it will jade me to the very world God has called me to love and to reach. How often it occurs. How often it occurs. What motivates you? Well, here's what scripture tells us should motivate us. If it's true, you see, if it's really true that every person is made in his image, then the first thing that should motivate us is value. Value. You see, if we're all made in the image of God, then that means that we are the object of God's love and desire to save and to be transformed by his grace. 
where that broken image is now reflecting what he originally intended for our lives. It means every man, every woman, every child, no one is excluded, everyone is included. No matter my nationality or my ethnicity or my culture or the language that I speak or my gender or my age or what I've done for good in life or bad in life and whether I even acknowledge that God exists and if he does, does he even know that I exist? Would he care? Because we're made in his image, we are the object of God's love and concern to restore our brokenness back into what he intended for our lives. Value. You see, value then becomes the lens of how he calls me to view other people, to view the world around me. Because what I've learned is, is what God loves, I must love. And what God values, the church is called to value. 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 But if value is important as a motivator, the second may be more so. And I like to call this capacity. You see, if it's really true, man, that every single person is made in the image of God and therefore we are the object of God's love and desire to restore our brokenness back into what he intended for our lives, then it also means that God has designed, created every single one of you, those watching by line, every single person on the earth with the capacity to authentically embrace his grace and forever be changed when we first hear the gospel of hope. Yeah. Yeah. That means every man, every woman, every child, no matter my nationality, my ethnicity, no matter my culture, the language that I speak, my geographical location, my gender, my age, what I've done for good in life or bad in life, and whether I even acknowledge that God exists, and whether even if he does, perhaps, would he even care? Would he notice us? That because we're made in his image, he has already designed you and every person with the ability to be a candidate for his grace. He is qualified with us even knowing it to be able to respond to his love, to lean in to the hope of the gospel. So it doesn't matter then, you see, whether I speak Chichewa or Tumbuka or Tonga or Ngoni or Kiswahili or Afanaromo or walk the dusty trails of Dar es Salaam or I find myself kneeling in a mosque in Tehran or find myself living in a cardboard box between sky rises in Manhattan or I find myself, for example, driving to church this morning and bringing my kids or my family. And it doesn't matter, you see, whether I like to eat ugali or I suck the head of a weird creature by a tribe down in Louisiana. Because I'm made in his image and you are made in his image and the person sitting beside you and the person across the street, the person in the marketplace in our world, without even knowing it, God has already pre-designed it for us to be candidates to receive his love and eternally be radically transformed by his grace. I mean, come on, let's just be honest, right? Let's lay our cards on the table. I mean, if you didn't believe in capacity, why even come here this morning? Why turn on the lights? Why go through the logistics? Why print a faith promise card? Why even contemplate giving? Why think about rolling out of bed early for prayer? I mean, why go all through the gymnastics if we don't believe in capacity? Because if after all, you see, if it's a roll of the dice where perhaps you can come to Christ, but we're not so sure about you. Your background is questionable. The things you've done, well, there's no way. The uncertainty that that breeds would be like poison in the body of Christ. 
that we only go for the low-hanging fruit. We only go for those that perhaps are raised in church. But what we have to realize is, is that this should breed confidence that God has already placed within every single human being the ability to say yes. And while many will say no, many, many, many will say yes. And that allows us to be able to go to the point in which we are willing to do whatever it takes. Because you see, it's true. If you do not believe in capacity and I do not believe in capacity, there will be self-limitations as to how much we allow ourselves to be involved in each other's life. Why would I cross the street in my neighborhood? Why would I share my faith on the factory floor? Why would I have the courage to embody the incredible values of the kingdom in my school, much less be able to give sacrificially to reach someone in a place I've never been or perhaps go give my life and serve there and raise my family. Why would we do it? I mean, if I don't believe that every person can truly come to Christ, then there probably will be limitations as to how much I decide I'm going to do. But if I believe that every single person sitting in this room, every single person, no matter who you are or what you've done, whether you feel valuable or not, much less everyone else in the world, if I believe that God has truly created us all to receive and respond to His love and His grace and His purpose for our life, then we in this room are committed to say, Lord, whatever you want us to do, what, how much I need to pray, what should I give? My time, my talent, my treasure are in your hands. Oh God, use us to reach our world. Let me illustrate it through a friend of mine in this picture. You'll see them sitting around and you won't actually see his face because I have to ensure that his... Identity is protected. When we first moved to Africa, we were asked to live in Malawi, which is internal southeast Africa. We lived there for many years, raised our boys there, became very close to the church. A time that really transformed and, and really made us who we are today. It impacted us deeply, changed us deeply. When we were there, we were asked because of my background to start a graduate school that would be a school well beyond the baccalaureate for certain leaders that would come in and study for two to three years at a time in its program. And it went from just being in that country to over 16 nations being represented, including Canadians and Americans and people from Asia. It was an incredible season. We ended up building buildings and grounds, but this was one of the early cohorts where some of these students became the dearest to me. One of those students, I'll call him in this service, Saeed. He came from Pakistan. Mother and father were Muslims, came to Jesus. Their lives were so radically changed that he ended up seeing their life. He came to faith and later, as a young adult, was called into ministry, decided he wanted to get married. They had two young daughters. And when he finally understood that God was calling him to plant churches, he decided to move all the way to Africa for three years, only going home three months out of every 12 to see his family. Sacrificed. Bright, capable, spoke several languages, loved Jesus, humble, when he graduated, he moved back to a great southern city where his family lived, reunited with his wife and two daughters. It was a moment, and six months later, he knew the Lord had spoken to him where he was to go, and they ended up having prayer at a train depot. And there, they ended up getting on that train going three hours to the north to this vicinity, this territory where we had even known that it was a pocket for extremism, difficult to have access to, and 
by foot. They got out at the train depot in the north and walked into this area meeting with tribal chiefs and elders, had permission to live among them, and they were granted that. But they were persecuted, marginalized, but they dug in, learned the dialect, loved the people, identified with them. And just over two years, they had led over 200 people for the first time to Jesus. And as they were identifying, the church continued to grow. With every single person that came to Christ, the persecution increased, but they were faithful. They stayed in there. Moments they wanted to give up, but God would renew their faith. They stayed in there, faithful. And all of a sudden, I remember acutely, I was on a platform, came out of a missions conference, Ended up getting into a taxi to race to the airport to catch my flight in time. And all of a sudden, my phone began to buzz through a message from another student of mine from South Africa that's serving currently somewhere in the Middle East. And he said, Dr. Easter, you should know. And all of a sudden, my face and heart went from being encouraged to discouraged as I read that in the Sunday prior to where I was in Miami, that in this service, in this village where Saeed and his wife we're mentoring and discipling these new believers for the first time in generations. These men became very angry as to what was transpiring, came in, became violent with the people inside, including the children. As a weapon of terror, they were able to take Saeed, throw him on his back, take him by his legs, drag him out to humiliate him in front of his newfound congregation. In the midst of the terror and the fear, the people began to run, and at least they had the the state of mind, the thoughtfulness to take Saeed's wife and two children and put them into hiding. And in the meantime, other men were waiting outside in this dirt road. They drug him out of that lean-to of a building, and when they threw him without explanation, those men began to kick him and beat him, and as he fell to the ground from just the punches to his gut and his head and his back, they continued to just beat him until his blood began to flow and mix with the dirt and cake on his body, and they beat him, and they beat him until he stopped moving. And when they finally got to the point where their anger had spilled over, those men began to slowly go back to their village areas, leaving him there. And only two, only two men had the courage to go back and retrieve his body, thinking they would bury him. And when one of them kneeled down, they found him still breathing. And that man quickly put Saeed on his shoulder. And those two men tried to go undetected in that area. And by several kilometers went back to that railroad track where they waited for that train. And others brought the wife and his two daughters. And they accompanied them three hours to the south. And when they put Saeed into the hospital, he stayed there for over 60 days without very good care trying to recover from internal wounds. And when they did, one week after he was released, he met with his grandparents, his parents. He took his wife and two children, asked them to meet them as they prepared. They met them at that railroad track, that train depot. They got on it three hours to the north and by foot walked right back into that village, the same village that tried to take their life where they are still there to this day. Capacity. I had friends of mine, I'll admit, I raised the question, why would, why would Saeed go back to that place? And he said, John, if in two years, 200 people who have never had an opportunity there's no church this among these people, he said. There's no follower of Jesus among these people. If 200 people can turn their hearts to Jesus and be so changed, perhaps if we go back and give our lives there, the whole village will come to Jesus. Capacity. You see, this is the reason you're willing to walk across the street in your neighborhood and show compassion and concern and interest. It's why you're willing to open up about your own testimony with others that need to hear it. It's why you're not ashamed or intimidated to be able to, with humility, embody and live out your faith and the values of the kingdom in your neighborhood. And as you're working on a site or going to school, 
It's why we take the moment every year to fill out faith promise cards, honestly. Capacity. But if value and capacity are important, the third is what it's all about, and this is what I like to call significance. You see, if it's true, man, that every single person is made in his image, and therefore they are the object of God's love and desire to save and to heal their brokenness back into his intended purpose, and that as a result he has designed us with the ability, the capacity to hear the gospel and be candidates for his love and be changed by his grace, then it also means that God has created every single one of you, every person watching by line, every individual made in his image, not just to have significance in the life thereafter, but in this life that you live today. It means that every single one of us have been birthed with his image imprinted to have a sense of purpose in life and destiny. Let me illustrate it through a friend of mine. I was praying with him on this day about two and a half years ago. Below are two individuals who are close to my heart. One is dressed in a blue shirt. The other has a traditional garb around his faith. Both of these men, their stories are so interesting because they were born and raised in the same village area, about 50 kilometers off the Somali border, outside of a city called Diradawa in eastern Ethiopia, among a large population of Oromo Muslims. This is a place of volatility and violence. It spills over the border constantly, where troops are constantly watching the militants on the other side. This is an area where deception is considered a value. Their stories came about when one of them as a young man had connected with someone else who had become a believer, a follower of Jesus in their community. And that person had the state of mind to take a moment and share their testimony with our friend in the blue shirt. God got a hold of his heart. His life was so transformed, he invited Jesus to become his savior. He ended up becoming part of the local church there in that large community where there were very few churches. Discipled, he grew in faith. He felt like God was calling him to ministry. He ended up moving to the capital of Addis Ababa. There we had one of our Bible schools. He became a student, received a scholarship. He ended up graduating with his community college degree, then his baccalaureate. He decided to plant a church. He planted a church. Then he planted a second church. And then he decided to plant a third church. And he didn't stop until he planted a fourth church. He became the evangelism director of the entire nation in our fellowship because of his heart for evangelism. He loves people. Our other brother, though, had a different story. He was trained, too. That's because he was radicalized in militancy in Islam. Became such a violent person that his leadership put their hand on him, too. Became the imam of a local mosque. And that mosque was known for what it would do in stirring up strife within the area. Then he had authority over a second one. And what transpired is, is that on one day, not long before I ended up praying with them, our evangelism director decided to go down and see his aging parents still live in that community to check on them. And this religious imam who grew up and knew our brother ended up deciding to take things in his own hands, send a message to the community. This is what happens when you become a follower of Jesus. He took other men who had the same kind of hatred in their heart. And when our evangelism director decided to walk up, saw his parents, celebration began to happen as they were looking at each other and walking with this gap of incredible excitement. All of a sudden, these men came out of nowhere, surrounded our evangelism director. Stones were being thrown, insults, dust was in the air. And they wanted to beat him to death in front of his family and the community. And what transpired then was nothing but miraculous. This religious imam said, I began to panic. 
He said, I don't know what happened to me. I threw a stone. He said, I knew what was in my heart. I knew what I was going to lead these men to do. And all of a sudden, I started yelling at them instead and said, tomorrow, tomorrow. I turned around and I began to run to the other side of my village. And when I finally got there in my boma, in the heat of the day, I crawled into it. In my anger and frustration, I sat there seething. And he said, I finally ended up drifting off to sleep. And I said, looking at me on this day, I do not know whether I had a vision or a dream, but I know this, I had an encounter with Isa, the name for Jesus. And he said, when I woke up, I crawled out of my hands and knees and put my face in the dirt. He said, I was so traumatized that when I, wet, when I stood up, I knew that I had been crying. And I began to then panic again when I realized that this evangelism director knew what we were trying to do. He probably ran for his life. So I began to run to the other side to find out if he was still there, send a message to his family. And when I found him, he was sitting down having coffee with his mother and father. And I fell down at his feet, begged his forgiveness, told him why we were acting so violently, told him he had nothing to fear. And I stood up and asked his forgiveness and said, Now, teach me more about this Jesus. And on that very day, our evangelism director led this violent imam to a born-again relationship with Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. The day that you see me praying for him in this photo, and I want you to look at their faces as you look. The reason I'm praying for him is not because he's becoming a Christian. He's now following Jesus. I'm praying for him because he had been discipled for just about a year. He was growing in faith, left his mosque, he was already being persecuted as being someone who abandoned the faith as a religious leader. And he said, I feel like God is calling me to be a preacher of the gospel. He is now a student at our Bible school in Diridawa. And I got reports during COVID that he had already planted his first church and hadn't even graduated school yet. <laughs> you see, this is a modern day Saul who is now a modern day Paul. Hallelujah. Significance. Significance. I don't care what your background is, what you've done for good in life or really bad in life. How many chances you think God's given you and you've decided to give up on yourself because you're made in His image. You're the object of His love and desire. And He has placed within you, whether you recognize it or not, the capacity to respond to His grace and to be changed radically by His love. Because he so desires for every individual in here and watching online and those around the world of the 42 percentile who've never once in their life had the opportunity to find significance in their relationship with Christ. And my question to you is absolutely then what should be motivating you right now? I'm going to sing a song now and after I do... Pastor will never invite me to come back here again. <clears throat> you may want to come and take the faith promise right now. When I flew from Miami after getting the message about Saeed, I walked into a room of 16 students, U-shaped, getting ready to teach five days, eight hours a day in a block course session. These are very, very capable, bright individuals. In the very middle is Gideon Bonda, 6'2", about 240, stood up, said, Dr. Easter, can I say something? And I said, sure. Tears start coming down his face. He stops. He's not a highly emotional man. Good man. 
Gideon looks at me and he says, after he composes himself, we heard about Saeed. He said, you know, all my life I've had very little to my name. He said, in fact, I was a broken man, he said. I was a broken man. I was a bad man until Jesus got a hold of my life. And he said, now I'm a minister of the gospel. And I realize in my community, so many already know him, but there are places in this world like where Saeed is. He said, how can I not? He said, send me to the hard place. I'll go. And all of a sudden, a young man pulled himself up by Gideon's arm and looked at me and said, no, he said, send me. He said, if you had known me, the way I was running the streets, and someone, someone shared with me the, the news about Jesus, his love for me, he said, I have never been the same. I'm here because of a scholarship, people investing in my life. He said, how can I not use the rest of my life to let other people have the same hope that I have today? Me and my wife, send us to the hard place. We will go and we'll be faithful. And all of a sudden, there was this noise in the room as chairs are being moved against that pavement. And they're standing up one by one but they're no longer looking at me. They're not addressing their comments at me. Their hands are in the air. Tears are coming down all their faces and they're recommitting their lives and their call to Jesus. And we begin to sing a song together in Chichewa. Mulungu, Angate, Angate, Angate Mulungu. Angate sale pera sona mulungu angate 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 mulungu angate sale pera sona God can do anything anytime anywhere God can do anything. He never fails. Would you lift your hands with me all over this place? Do you believe that? Would you stand with me as your hands are lifted? And let's surrender our hearts to him before Pastor Corey comes and gives us this moment of leading us in a challenge to say, God, what are you calling us to do? As the musicians come and play, I was thinking as we were singing this morning about the goodness of God. And now what is our moment? How do we respond to his goodness? How do we respond to knowing that we have been people that for some reason, because of where we live and the church we've been raised in, or our family or our mom or our father or an auntie or an, or an uncle led us to Jesus. But so many who have never had the opportunity, the privileges that we have, what is it that is our response? How do we align our priorities with God's heart? What is it that in a moment you would say, John, I am willing to not only be able to commit myself financially over the next year as God enables me to give, but I want to go deep. What will you pray? Perhaps there's someone in here watching online that God is actually calling you like he called me and Cheryl. This is the moment to exercise that. Stepping out, making a decision. Because I don't care who you are or where you're from. God can use your life. And he will use you. When you position yourself in his grace. Let's lift our hands all over this building as a sign of surrenderance to him. And I want you before Pastor Corey comes to lead us just in a moment, I want you with your own lips to say, God, here I am. I am yours. If you're watching by line, you do the same thing at your device. Can we do that now as the musicians play? Lord, here we are. We are yours. We surrender our lives. We say, oh God, whatever you want to do with us. And as we think about this moment with this faith promise, God, Lord, instead of being superficial, Instead of being fearful of the unknown, 
about what tomorrow's doing, what the stocks may be doing, what our salary may be. Lord, we pray you've given us a mandate. Help us to step forward, Lord, in faith, knowing that when we take care of your business, you take care of us. And we pray, Lord, in our time, our talent, our treasure, they belong to you. They're not ours. And I pray, Lord, it doesn't matter if someone's here and they're 15 years old or 22 or 39, if they have young children or children that are now living on their own, whether they're retirees and those transitioning, for all of us in this room, Lord, we will bring to the table whatever we can bring to see that through Christian life and the ministry that transpires at this amazing family, that God, that we are not only reaching the records of what you've asked us to do, but Lord, we go way beyond it for the sake of the gospel, the advancement of your kingdom, because in the end, Lord, we may build buildings, we may do compassion, we may push, we may distribute literature, but in the end, Lord, it's not about those things, it's about people. It's about people. And I pray, Lord, that you'd help us to realize it. As you look at me once more, I want you to think about this as you get ready to give. Cheryl and I have been doing this for, well, probably 30, 35 years of our marriage. We support missionaries today, and we are missionaries. I just love what we do. I believe in it enough that if I'm going to ask people to give to it, I should be giving to it. I've never seen God not fulfill what He spoke to our hearts to give. Sometimes it took a little faith. But boy, not only did He provide in order to respond what He placed in my heart, He provided a little more. Reminded us that it's His economy. And I want to say you step out because here's the thought. I'm telling you, if Saeed and his wife and two children can get back on that train and go three hours to the north and by foot several kilometers walk back into that village, I'm asking you, what can you do? What can you do? Don't walk out of here and not say, Lord, I'm going to take a moment. And I'm going to give you what I can do. And if you want me to go beyond that, then I'll trust you in what you can do. We love you. Thank you for participating in God's mission.